Well, we're starting a new sermon series um, looking at the gospel, and it's going to be more of a thematic sermon series as we pick up key ideas um, from Romans 1, verses 16, 17, that unpack for us what the gospel is. Now, as we're starting out on the sermon series and we're doing it for the next few weeks, I just wanted to shape a little bit by helping you understand why we're looking at the gospel and also why we're looking at Romans 1, 16, 17, particularly as our foundation text for the next five weeks. First of all, why are we looking at the gospel? Well, we're looking at the gospel because in the Christian life, you never move beyond the gospel. The gospel is the foundation point for the Christian life. If you're looking in and you're here with us as a guest, it's great to have you here. And if you want to understand what Christianity is about, it's about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But similarly, also for those of us who might have been walking with the Lord for a number of the years, it's growing in the gospel that enables us to grow as Christians. We don't move on to something new, and it's living that gospel out as a dynamic of renewal in our lives which helps us to grow. So that's why we're looking at the gospel. We want to come back to it, to found ourselves on it, whether we've been walking with the Lord 20 years or whether we're considering it for the first time. Secondly, we're looking at Romans 1, 16 to 17, because this letter written to this global city of Rome back in the first century is all about the gospel. Paul unpacks in this majestic letter the gospel in some of the richest and most wonderful verses in all of Scripture. And in verses 16 to 17, he gives us the gospel in kind of concentrated, distilled form. And so we're going to be coming to these verses to kind of to take out some of the key themes But also, Paul is writing to Rome, and so he's writing to a global city at the time, and we have the privilege of living in London, a global city. And so by seeing how Paul writes it to the Romans then, we're going to see how he places it in context and how he communicates it and how it's received by a city then, and that will give us helpful angles to reflect on how it's received and how we communicate it to our global city of London today. So that's where we're going with it. Now, the first thing to notice then as we come to this glorious gospel and as we look at how Paul communicates to it is to look at the very beginning of verse 16. And Paul starts in a slightly strange way. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It begs the question, right? If the gospel is so glorious, if the gospel is so central, if the gospel is such good news, why put it that way? I'm not ashamed. I mean, why not say I'm confident in the gospel? I rejoice in the gospel, I glory in the gospel. Why put it in the negative? I mean, that that begs a question, right? Uh, Think of it this way. Imagine that Rebecca and I are getting ready to go out for a a meal. It's been lovely now that we're able to do that again. And um, Rebecca comes downstairs, having dressed up to look nice for the evening, and she says, how do I look? I could say, you look stunning, you look beautiful, you look wonderful. But what if I said, well, you don't look scruffy? I mean, that would raise the question, wouldn't it? What, do I normally think she does? Does she normally? That when you put something in the negative, it always begs the question. By the way, lads, don't do that. That's never a good call. Go with the positive straight away. It raises the question. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's clearly presupposing that in a global city like Rome, the inclination of the human heart is that when you first hear the gospel, you think it's shameful. And he's saying, I'm not ashamed of it. In other words, we think intuitively, particularly in a global city context, that the gospel is bad news, not good news, that it's shameful, not glorious. And it's the same for us today here in London. And so what I want us to see as we go through this this week and over the next few weeks is how we make that move from the intuitive kind of appreciation of the gospel, of the sinful human heart, particularly in a city, is to think that's not good news. 
Now, that's bad news. But then as you see it really for how glorious it is, as you see Jesus Christ as He really is, you move in the power of the Spirit to say, this is good news. This is glorious. This is the best thing. This is what I want to build my life on. That's where I want us all to go time after time again over the coming weeks. Famously, Martin Luther, the reformer, went on this journey in his own setting 500 or so years ago. He wrote this in his autobiographical writings about his gospel journey. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would assuage God. Therefore, I didn't love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Then I grasped that through gift and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. And thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Do you see the journey there for Martin Luther? From hating and murmuring against God to a, a new birth of paradise. That's the move that I hope we go on. Well, to do that, we're really just looking at one point this evening, but we're going to break it down in three parts. The gospel, the gospel of God, and the gospel of God through Jesus Christ. Okay, so we'll start by looking at the gospel. Of, uh, the gospel. First, we need to understand what the gospel is and what this word means. I mean, gospel, as Andy said in his kid slot, literally means good news. But it wasn't actually a religious word in the first century. It was a, an everyday word. It was a word that was used particularly by the empire at the time, Rome. Whenever Caesar did something, a new territory was conquered or a battle was won, the good news or the news would go out throughout the whole empire declaring authoritatively what Caesar had done. So when Jesus chooses to use that term, and Paul continues to use that term to explain what God has done, they're making a number of important claims. First of all, they're saying that this is an authoritative declaration about what has happened. It was the, the newscaster of the day. If Caesar achieves something, then it's announced. It's true. It's saying he's taken a new territory. That's really happened. And so similarly, when the gospel is declared, it's saying this has happened Jesus has come in space, time, and history. If you like, it's capital T, truth. It's not just true for you, but it's true for all people. It's authoritative. Now, pause. Straight away, we can see why this is not necessarily something that we feel comfortable of about today. I mean, you go to someone and you say, like, I believe in Christianity or I believe in Jesus Christ. What's the normal response? Hey, that's great for you. And I'm really pleased that you have your own beliefs. You just keep them to yourself and I'll do my own thing, right? That's how religion is supposed to be governed in our late modern society. Religious belief, fine for you, whatever you want to believe in. Just like yoga. You want to do yoga, do yoga. You want to be a vegan, be a vegan. No judgment here. Just don't try to impose it on me, right? Don't try to go around saying that it's capital T truth. I mean, that's a big no-no. Because then what happens if I disagree with you? Isn't that a power play? That's bad news. That's not good news. And this is so ubiquitous that we think, actually, or we're told frequently, that the only view you can hold in the public square is that actually there is no such thing as truth. It's just what's true for you. Keep religion out of the public square. Private, no problem. Inside church buildings, no problem. But don't bring it to work. Don't bring it into the public square. Don't claim it's true with a capital T. That's too uncomfortable. 
In fact, for example, in uh, 2006, there was a declaration in defense of science and secularism that was signed by 40 or so eminent scientists and philosophers who were all um, secular thinkers, and they called for a strict separation between church and state, and in particular, not to permit legislation or executive action to be influenced by religious beliefs. And look, to a degree, you can empathize with that. You know, we live in a, in a London in city where there are so many different nationalities, different beliefs, different backgrounds. Surely it's just a recipe for disaster if people start walking around saying, what I believe is true with a capital T, and therefore by implication, if you don't believe it, you might be in the wrong. I mean, that, that's not going to work, is it? That's not going to produce a tolerant and, you know, coherent society that we long for. So you keep it to yourself, I'll keep it to myself, and we're all okay. The thing, I think there's a couple of problems with that view, though. First of all, to say that all religion needs to be kept out of the public square and kept private isn't actually making the public square neutral. That's not a neutral view. That's actually making the public square secular. In fact, it's saying that the only belief you're allowed to hold in the public square is the secular belief. Now, there have been societies, indeed there are some around the world today, where they mandate holding a secular view in all aspects of life, and including in the public square, and they don't generally do well on a human rights record. Think of um, Mao's China, think of Kim Jong-un's North Korea, that is explicitly the view that they hold. So it doesn't generally lead to liberation and to a libertarian society, it generally leads to a mandating and a restriction on what you have to believe. The second thing, though, is particularly to look at the nature of the gospel truth. It's fascinating that Paul says that he has received grace and apostleship, he's been sent, to preach the gospel to all nations. In other words, what is it that motivates him to want to go to all nations? It's the grace of the gospel. So yes, the gospel is true, but it's grace truth. And what is grace? Well, grace is the unmerited, freely offered, unconditional love and acceptance of God the Father. Grace is saying that whoever you are, there is forgiveness on offer for you no matter what you've done. Grace isn't a power play that's seeking to domineer you or to manipulate you. Grace is a, a move of service and sacrifice by the God who comes and dies on a cross for you and says, whether you know me or not, I love you and I'm here for you. So if you were to ask the Apostle Paul and you would say, Paul, what on earth gives you the right to share your truth in the public square? Do you think you're better than me? Do you think you, you're better than other, other believers who believe different religions? What would Paul say? Well, because he understands grace. We know what he says. He says this, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. I'm far worse than you. I'm far worse than people who believe other different things to me. I don't think I'm better than them. It's the opposite. I think I'm worse than them. But here's the thing. I've been loved and accepted by God. And since this love is for all, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't tell you about it. What kind of a human being would that make me? To love God and to know his love and not to want to share that? No, no, I have to share this truth because it's such good news. That's a love that liberates. That's a love that fosters meaningful and good dialogue in our public square. It doesn't lead to conflict. It leads to a sense of humility and longing for understanding and listening to other people. The gospel, the gospel of grace. Secondly, though, the gospel of God. The second thing for us to grasp is that this is a gospel that is of God. Paul so wants us to get this that he starts with it in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. 
That is to say, foundationally, that the gospel is about God. It's about what he's doing in the world. It's about his initiative. It's about his movement. It's about his work of salvation. It's about his glory. It's about his mission. It's fundamentally about God. Now, this obviously doesn't feel like good news for a culture that is, you know, all geared towards the self. I mean, you know this, you know, tailored browser settings that are all about you, so you get the marketing things pushed to you, you get the news reports that are geared for you, you know, it's all geared for you, or consumer experience, it's a consumer-centered society, so it's about you, right? You want it your way at Burger King, BK, you got it. I mean, that's consumer-centered experience. And a wider culture that says the ultimate aim in life is self-realization, self-actualization, self-fulfillment, or if you want it in less technical terms, the phrase, you do you, or more brief, do you. Right? That's what we say, you do you, you do you. No, you get yours, be happy, pursue your, your dreams, that's fine, you do you. And so a gospel that comes along and doesn't say it's a gospel about you, but says it's a gospel about God fundamentally, That's on a kind of collision course with the individualism and the self-centeredness of Western society. Now, please hear me. It's not saying that you are incidental to the gospel. As we'll find, you're essential to the gospel. But it's saying that fundamentally, it's not about you. It's about God and His glory. It's about God and His initiative. It's about God and His salvation and His work in your life. So you're very much in the story but you're just not the hero of the story. God is. And it's worth, I think, just pausing for a moment and noticing how much in the church, in the West, this culture of self has subtly distorted the gospel that we often listen to. Let me give you three ways that I think are pretty prevalent and we might easily be able to fall into. The first one is the gospel presented as a moral pick-me-up. So this, I think, is particularly linked to the self-help movement. It identifies the huge desire there is for people to improve, to get better life, and there's lots that's commendable about that. I mean, after all, if the gospel is about God and living in relationship with God, then it will make you better at life. You will do relationships better. You will understand the world better. So there's lots about that, but ultimately that's not the main reason for the gospel. Under the gospel as a kind of moral pick-me-up, there are often pithy, shorter sermons where particularly you get a focus on, you know, how to be better at bringing up your kids and not losing your temper, how to be a more courageous person, how to foster meaningful conversations, how to be a better listener, the kind of how-to gospel. And under this type of gospel scheme, sin ceases to be fundamentally about rejecting God's glory Sin instead becomes more about making bad choices, bad choices you've made when we want to talk about better choices. Jesus Christ's work of redemption ceases to be about his sin-bearing, atoning death, making us right with God, and instead he becomes much more of an example we should follow. Look at how courageous he was on the cross, three steps to be like Jesus. And the Christian life becomes less about a relationship, walking with God and enjoying God, and much more about a journey of growth and improvement and moral, you know, kind of um, moral improvement. Again, part of what makes this so seductive is those are all half-truths. 
There's a lot of that in the gospel. It's just not fundamentally what the gospel is about. Secondly, think about the gospel as religious therapy. Now, again, hear me properly. We live in an age where there's a huge focus on mental well-being, and I think that's a really good thing. Uh, my sister-in-law, Mark's wife, is a um, psychologist. My mother-in-law is a psychiatrist. So we're a family where we're very au fait with mental health and the importance of it. And we here at Inspire take it really seriously. We have Ashley Coldwell on staff doing her Biblical Counseling UK qualifications to help us take this seriously. So we're not saying it's not important, but we're saying it's not fundamentally what the gospel is about. The gospel is about God. And under the view as gospel as religious therapy, then sin gets portrayed as brokenness. Um, and then redemption often is focused on Christ making you whole and bringing healing to your life. And the Christian life becomes focused almost exclusively on mental healing, restoration, and well-being. Exclusively, rather than on a focus on walking with God, understanding God, and what He's doing in the world. It can become very me-focused. Again, it's a half-truth. I'm not saying that that's not important. I'm just saying it's not the whole show. And thirdly, the gospel as an emotional experience. Look, perhaps in reaction to a mode of preaching or teaching or Christianity or even wide society that is overly intellectual, overly dry, overly information-centered, there's been a big kickback, and there's instead a search and a longing for emotional experience, for a kind of religious experience. And so often the gospel presented this way, there's a big focus on the experience of the preacher. He or she will talk about a journey they've been on or a narrative in their life, and it will be very emotive, and it will really grip you. And then often it's accompanied by fantastic music. And again, here I say, we have fantastic music. We love fantastic music. But the focus can be so much on the music, so much on the experience. Lights down low, music volume up high, usually in a register that no one can sing, so it's more like the pop charts than it is like congregational singing. And under that, that all focus on emotional experience. And you get it, and you come away from church on Sunday feeling fantastic. But then you search for it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and there just seems a massive disjunct. The thrill of Sunday doesn't ground in the reality of life Monday through Saturday. And again, you know, under this, sin is often about failing to experience the fullness of God. Um, the work of redemption is about God giving you fullness, a full experience, often, you know, a really powerful religious experience, which sometimes can be very authentic. And the Christian life can become about a search for that experience and an ever-increasing sense of that experience. Now, again, please hear me trying to be nuanced here. If the gospel is the gospel about what God has done in Jesus Christ, coming into the world, his love shed abroad in your hearts by the Spirit, how can that be anything other than emotional? If we don't feel the emotion, there's something wrong with us. It's always emotional. But the point is Jesus Christ isn't a servant of your emotional search. He's not here just to give you an emotional experience. There's more to it than that. It's about God. And I wonder if part of the reason that we struggle in our Western society is because actually, deep down, we know that this focus on self is not good for us. In the uh, ancient Greek myth, Hercules, as one of his tasks, had to go to Atlas the Titan, and for a brief moment, he had to take the weight of the world on his shoulders. Atlas tried to play a trick on Hercules so that he would hold the world for the rest of time, and Atlas would be liberated. Fortunately, Hercules was wise enough to see the trick, and he tricked Atlas back and gave the world back to Atlas. The point being this, I wonder if our culture has played that trick on us. It says, you hold the weight of the world on your shoulders. Hey, it's all about you. You do you. 
and we think it's going to be great, and then with the weight of the world on our shoulders, you know what? It crushes us. Because if life is all about you, then all of the problems of the world are on your shoulders. If you're not doing great at life, it's all your fault. But if it's about God, ultimately, then it takes the weight of the world off your shoulders and it puts it on God. When I'm feeling stressed, when I'm struggling for perspective, I've always had the same impetus. I always want to go and find the largest body of water near me. I used to live in Rutland where they have a very, very large reservoir and I used to just go there and walk by the reservoir. If I'm by the sea, I'll go to the sea. Here in London, the best I can do is to go down to the Thames. But why, when I'm feeling stressed, do I want to be near a large body of water? I can tell you what. It's not to feel big about myself. The large body of water puts me in perspective. It reminds me that the world is very big, that long after I've gone, the tides will rise and fall, and I will be forgotten, that I am very small, and the world is very big, and I live in a world made by a very big and great Savior and Creator, God. In other words, it puts God back at the center, and suddenly I feel liberated because the weight is taken off my shoulders. Jesus doesn't say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll put the world on your shoulders. He says, give it to me. Take it away. Give it to me, and I will give you rest. And ultimately, there's liberation in realizing the gospel foundationally, whilst it includes you, and you are very loved. It's not about you It didn't start with you. It won't end with you. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. I think the thing our Western world really needs to hear is a gospel that is about God, that views and changes things from an obsession of self. Lastly, the gospel of God about Jesus Christ. In these verses, up to verse 17, Jesus, I think, is referred to 11 times, and seven of those are in the first six verses. In other words, when Paul starts talking about the gospel, he wants you to get that it's about God, and it's about Jesus Christ, what God is doing through Jesus Christ. Sometimes after I preach, I go back to Rebecca, and I kind of say, how was it? And she's always kind and gracious to me, and then after I've you know, had a bit of time to rest, she gives me some gentle feedback. But often what she says to me, she says, yeah, it was all right, you know, the first bit was okay, you were doing your talky thing, you know, but then, oh, I really liked the bit when you started talking about Jesus. And her eyes light up and the pupils dilate, and that's the bit that comes alive for her. Friends, that should always be the way. And we should always be preaching in such a way that Jesus is magnified. Why? Because the gospel is about God, and it's about what he's doing through his son, Jesus Christ. Have you thought about it? And on one level, Jesus must have looked utterly pathetic to the city of Rome, a city drunk on its own power and on its narratives of military conquest and the might and the grandeur of Rome. I mean, who was Jesus to them? I mean, you know, this was a backwater Palestine that the Rome had conquered with no thought, ruled as easily as anything. Jesus didn't even come from the capital of it, Jerusalem. He came from Galilee, a backwater of a backwater. And who was he? He held no political office. He conquered no armies. He won no battles. He died a criminal's death, naked on a cross, a source of great shame to the might of Rome. Who was he? Shameful, weak, pathetic. And yet that same Jesus Christ turned the whole course of the culture of Rome and the Roman civilization completely on its head. Within a few hundred years, he would be believed as the main god of the whole of the Roman Empire. 
And long after the Roman Empire had crumbled, his name and his fame continued to advance. You see, he's not insignificant. As we read in Romans 1, he's the Christ that is God's anointed king. He's not unknown. He's the long-promised son of God. He's not weak. He's the all-powerful Lord of all. He's not shameful. He's the one who's conquered death and has been declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. That's who he really is. And so if in London today you think Jesus is pathetic and you feel ashamed about him when you go into the office, realize who he really is. It's about Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks of his humanity. Yeshua, the one who saves God saves. He's come to save you. Christ speaks of him being the anointed king, the long-promised one throughout hundreds of years of Scripture, now arrived, the exalted king. That is, Jesus is God's king who's come to save. And you know, our self-obsession isn't just a feature of 21st century. It was a feature of the first century. It's been a feature of every century there's ever been in human history. Because Romans 1 makes it very clear to us that we know deep down as human beings that actually everything is being created by God. All that we have, all of the good things, breath in our lungs, vibrancy and vigor, relationships, fun, family, friends, for some even fame and fortune, all of it has been given by God as a gift, as a loving creator. And yet you know what? We want to receive the gifts and give absolutely no acknowledgement or glory to God. We want to say it's mine, my gifts, my life, my choices. And we push God to the periphery. We do it by saying mine, 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 mine a thousand times. And the more we say it, the more we believe our own lie until we can't even believe in God anymore. And everything around us reinforces that. And that is a great offense to God, the gospel says. Gospel... God of the world is the creator. He's given us everything. And to live as though he hasn't given you anything, to live with no reference to him, is cosmically ungrateful. And so it offends God deeply. It arouses his just and righteous anger. And he pours that anger out on all people in this life and in the world to come. And we all deserve to face that judgment. But the wonderful good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ comes into the world and he lives the perfect life in a perfect relationship with God the Father, the life that you and I should live but can never live. And then he willingly goes to the cross and he dies the death that every one of us, if I can put it like this, deserves to die as God pours out on him for one moment in space, time, and history all of his just, settled anger at our rejection of God and our pushing God to the peripheries and our saying mine when it's actually God's. And so he goes to hell on the cross for us. He dies on the cross bearing our sin. He takes the judgment that we deserve. He, the author of life, dies on the cross. He, the perfectly good one, bears sin on the cross. He, the one who always lived in a perfect relationship with his father, is rejected on the cross so that we might have life, we might know forgiveness, we might know acceptance, we might breathe again. That's the gospel, and then he rises three days later to new life to prove that it worked and to prove that there is a future and there is hope and to restore us to relationship with God. You know, the more we grasp what Jesus Christ has done for us, the more this gospel will, I don't know, come alive for us, the more it will thrill our hearts. John Newton, the famous converted slave trader, 
um, said that when he was young, he was sure of many things, but now that his memory is old, he thinks there are only two things of which I'm sure. He writes, one is that I'm a miserable sinner, the other that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. And he then goes on, he is well taught who learns these two lessons. My friends, can I ask you, if you've never heard of Christianity before, are you starting to become aware of this? That actually you are a sinner, that is you've rejected God and yet God loves you beyond belief and wants a relationship with you. That's the gospel, that's what Christianity is about. And as you do that, it re-enthrones God in your life and it puts Jesus Christ central and you realize how loved you are and it is good news. But my friends, for most of us in this room, this is the gospel we've believed. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't. But under lockdown, I wonder, have you become weary of this? Have you maybe forgotten this? Have you maybe bought into the narrative that has become, I don't know, look at myself in the mirror, has become too self-focused, too self-obsessed, making life about me all of a sudden, griping about all the things that are wrong with the world or with lockdown or with other people? We need to come back to this gospel because this is the gospel that thrills our hearts, that changes us, that sheds love abroad in our hearts, that transforms us as a community. As I close, three spheres just to apply this to, to us. To not be ashamed of the gospel. That means to live it out, to imbibe it, to embrace it in your life, as it works better in American. You know, the gospel is not just the ABC to the Christian life. The gospel is the A to Z to the Christian life. I haven't worked out a good English, you know, kind of alternative for it yet. In other words, the gospel is what you live by. Live the gospel, breathe the gospel, enjoy the gospel, pray the gospel, read the gospel, sing the gospel, talk about the gospel, meditate on the gospel, live in the gospel. That's the Christian life. For us as a church, our number one value here in Inspire St. James is biblical preaching. Why? Not just because we want the gospel to be proclaimed up front, though of course that, but we want the gospel to be so proclaimed that it saturates everything we do as a church. That's why it's the number one value. We want it to govern how we do relationships. We want it to be the focus of our mission. We want it to imbibe how we serve one another. We want it to be in the conversations we have. We want it to shape every individual from people in the pews through to the leadership who serve. We want it to be saturated by the gospel. And if we're going to grow as a church in number and in maturity, then we have to found ourselves on the gospel. And lastly, the city. Our vision here at Inspire is to inspire London with the good news of Jesus Christ. We are foolish enough to long for and to hope and to believe that what the city of London needs is the gospel. Every person in this great city needs to hear the gospel. We long for more and more people to believe the gospel, and we are laboring and praying for a society that is saturated by the gospel so the gospel gets into every nook and cranny, whether arts or business or sport or music from family through to people up in government, whoever they are, whatever aspect of cultural life, the gospel, we want to see it there. Then this city will start to be changed, become something of what God wants and longs. Let me lead us in a prayer. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the gospel about God, the gospel of God about Jesus Christ. We pray that we might really believe this gospel. Lord, if we've taken it for granted, maybe over a period of lockdown, if we've become unmoored as ships, untethered now to the gospel, bring us back, Lord God, we pray. Help us over the course of this sermon series to see again the glory of the gospel, to not be ashamed of the gospel. 
Help us to live it out and to remind one another of it as the church. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.